Hello, and welcome to episode 17 of my Leaders of the American Civil War podcast. In this episode, we will continue our discussion of Union General George Henry Thomas, one of the most interesting and impactful leaders of the, of the Civil War. Now, to pick up where we left off, it was December 31st, the last day of 1862, and the first day of the Stones River Battle. The Union Army of the Cumberland had its right flank destroyed by the Confederate Army of Tennessee and was nearly cut off from their supply line uh, on the Nashville Turnpike. The rebel, the Federals were sent reeling backwards uh, some two and a half miles, and many of their men and cannon had fallen into Confederate hands. If not for the heroic efforts of Phil Sheridan's division to slow the rebel attack, which was being led by Patrick Cleburne's division, all may have been lost for the Federals even before it started. After the Confederate onslaught, the Union forces were saved by energetic leadership by Rosecrans and Thomas. They were also saved by the fact that they now had compact interior lines from which to defend against vigorous attacks from Bragg's Confederate forces all afternoon on the 31st. Once the attacks on the Union right finally lost steam, Bragg focused all of his attention on breaking the Union center. This attack was led by Confederate General Leonidas Polk's corps in the center of the Confederate position. Now, my ancestor fought in Polk's corps as an artillerist in the 4th Brigade under then-Colonel Manigault. This brigade consisted mainly of Alabama regiments and an Alabama uh, artillery battery led by Captain Waters. His unit actually was involved both in the onslaught of the morning's fighting and on the, uh, on the Union right, and then the pounding that uh, the Confederates put on the Union center later that day. The Union center was now being held stubbornly by uh, Union General George Thomas's men. The Union line had started uh, on December 31st looking like a straight line, facing southeast with Stones River providing the anchor on both flanks. By the end of the day, however, this line now resembled an oval, a very narrow oval, with Thomas's corps on the apex face, facing the rebels. After a mainly successful day of attacking the Federals and very nearly cutting them off, Confederate Commander Bragg was now confident of success. In fact, he was so confident, he sent a telegram to the Confederate capital in Richmond, Virginia, saying the following, quote, God has granted us a happy new year, unquote. That night, Rosecrans pulled his officers together for a conference in which most of them advocated for withdrawal to Nashville. However, when Rosecrans asked Thomas for his advice, he was recorded to say the following, Gentlemen, I know of no better place to die than right here. So they stayed and they fought on. Now, Thomas was actually confident of success himself because he was prepared. He now uh, had possession of the high ground on the west bank of the Stones River and used that position to fight off many ferocious attacks for the next two days. From Stephen Whitworth. A reason for federal victory at the Battle of Stones River was the presence of Major General George H. Thomas, Rosecrans' top lieutenant. Three years older than Rosecrans and two years ahead of him at West Point, Thomas had a union, was a Union-loyal Virginian who had served with distinction in every battle of what was now the Army of the Cumberland. At Stones River, Thomas was a tower of strength. His crucial section of the line held firm and became the keystone of stopping the Confederate assault. 
His sturdy influence steadied Rosecrans through the ordeal. After Stone's River, his continued presence in the Army, commanded, uh, commander of the 14th Corps, made it one of its greatest strengths. Then on January 2nd, in the afternoon, Confederate General Bragg ordered General Breckinridge, who was the former U.S. Vice President, to send his men forward and take the Union left and to push Thomas's men off their high ground. This was a desperate attack that very nearly broke through the Union line in a final charge. However, the uh, Federal line is once again salvaged, this time due to the courageous efforts of Captain John C. Mendenhall, who positioned nearly 50 cannon hub-to-hub to blast away at the Confederate attackers. He won the Medal of Honor for this. In addition, General Thomas, at just the right moment, sent a fresh brigade of Federals to rush upon the reeling rebels with a bayonet countercharge. The artillery, coupled with Thomas's counterattack, proved too much for Bragg's men. Bragg withdrew the next day, completely from the battlefield, leaving his dead and wounded men behind from one of the most bloody battles of the Civil War. Union forces held the battlefield in the end and were able to claim victory. By their retreat, the Confederates gave up Middle Tennessee. Also, uh, Kentucky was made secure for the Union, which could not have come at a better time. That's because at the beginning of 1863, the Eastern Theater was a disaster for the Federals, having just lost a big battle at Fredericksburg. And in the West, things were still very uncertain for Grant's campaign uh, in his efforts to take Vicksburg at that time. Therefore, the victory at Stones River gave the Northern population and the Lincoln administration just a shot in the arm they needed. This helped keep up morale in the Northern states as they entered the crucial 1863 campaigning season. Vicksburg and Gettysburg were still in the future, and the Union cause needed every bit of, of success they could get. Now, the Union Army moved down and occupied Murfreesboro, Tennessee, the town the Confederates had just abandoned in their retreat from Stones River. At this point, General Rosecrans was probably the most popular general in the Union Army. Secretary of War Stanton wrote the following in a telegram to Rosecrans. Quote, There is nothing within my power to grant to yourself or your heroic command that will not be cheerfully given, unquote. However, rather than pursue the rebels right away as the Lincoln administration had hoped, Rosecrans and his army stayed put for six months. Yes, six months, or almost six months. And in early 1863 in America, this was a lifetime. Union headquarters in Washington were desperate for Rosecrans to move. The reason for this desperation included another massive defeat at the hands of Robert E. Lee in Chancellorsville in, in, in the Eastern Theater. Also, a failed Union attack that had just occurred in Charleston Harbor. Uh, in addition to that, Grant was still struggling to make his way to Vicksburg, Mississippi. And in order to keep the Confederates from shifting reinforcements over to Penderton, Pen- Pemberton and Johnston in Mississippi, the Union needed the Army of the Cumberland to be aggressive in their sector. Uh, this was not happening, as, and as a consequence, Rosecrans and Thomas, by extension, were getting extreme pressure to move. Now, Rosecrans insisted he needed time to protect, protect his long and vital supply lines, 
and he also desperately needed to build up his cavalry force. Union headquarters did not see the importance of cavalry yet at this point in the war, but Rosecrans and Thomas were dealing with constant raids from rebel cavalry forces of both Nathan Bedford Forrest and Joseph Wheeler. These were both two of the best cavalry commanders the South possessed, and they had trained their sights on Rosecrans' supply lines and his garrisons. As we discussed in the Longstreet episodes, Wheeler would go on after the war to fight with the U.S. Army in the Spanish-American War, uh, sort of ironically. Now, this unwanted attention from the rebel cavalry was actually good news for Grant and Sherman over in Mississippi. This is because it meant for once they didn't have to deal with forest cavalry during much of the Vicksburg campaign. This fact helped make Grierson's heroic diversionary cavalry raid a huge success while Grant landed uh, was finally landing his forces in Mississippi just south of Vicksburg. Meanwhile, the Lincoln administration was nearly frantic to get Rosecrans moving against Bragg's Confederate forces, but he refused. Then finally, on May the 28th, President Lincoln wired Rosecrans, quote, I would not push you to any rashness, but I am very anxious that you do your utmost, short of rashness, to keep Bragg from getting off to help Johnston against Grant, unquote. Halleck said further on June the 2nd, quote, if you, if you can do nothing yourself, a portion of your troops must be sent to Grant's relief, unquote. The pressure on Rosecrans became so great that he threatened to resign. However, Thomas talked him out of it, quote, Our government is struggling under a heavy weight that we in the field have no knowledge of. We must take it for granted that we are, they are doing all in their power to meet our demands, unquote. Now, during this time, Thomas was indeed taking action to improve the cavalry under his command, even though Union, Union headquarters was not having it. Remember, Thomas was obsessed with preparation, and this was especially true during this quiet period for the Army of the Cumberland in early 1863. One of Thomas's divisions included a brigade under Colonel John T. Wilder, whom we discussed in the Richard Owen episode. They became known as the Lightning Brigade. Now, Wilder took it upon himself to procure horses and mules from the local Tennessee population, and most importantly, Wilder procured Spencer repeating rifles for his entire brigade. These rifles were the very definition of game-changing for this small Union force. Again, from Stephen Woodworth. The Spencer had a seven-round magazine in the stock, took metallic cartridges, and could fire about seven or eight times as many rounds per minute as the conventional Springfields and Enfields with which most Civil War soldiers were armed. Wilder's uh, Lightning Brigade possessed not only the advantages of mobility and firepower, but also very high morale. Wilder seems to have believed that he could lick the world, and his men were inclined to agree. So now let's talk about the Tullahoma Campaign. Finally, on June the 23rd, the Union Army of the Cumberland began to make its move on Bragg. The Tullahoma Campaign got its name from the small town in Tennessee that was occupied by the Confederates in early 1863, right after Stones River. By the end of this nine-day campaign, 
the rebels had been flanked out of position in what has been called one of the most brilliant maneuvers of the American Civil War, which was done by the Army of the Cumberland. It was a hugely complex campaign of feigning moves and counter-moves on the part of Rosecrans' Union Army. There were no big set-piece battles and very little carnage. Perhaps this is the reason the Tullahoma campaign has never, never received a lot of attention. Instead of big battles, the Union Army simply outmaneuvered and tricked Bragg into giving up his strategically important Tullahoma position and eventually giving up the crucial crossroads city of Chattanooga itself. Again, during this time, George Thomas, uh, now over the Union 14th Corps, played, a, played the critical role at the center of the Union Army. Thomas was tasked with getting on General, uh, Confederate General William Hardee's right flank by heading straight for Hoover's Gap in the Highland Rim. Thomas uh, had carefully prepared his commanders in advance for this movement, and during this time, his most impactful commander was John T. Wilder. When they moved out of Murfreesboro, Wilder's Lightning Brigade had gotten out ahead of the rest of Thomas's force, and after successfully scattering a Kentucky Cavalry Regiment, he took up positions in the strategically important Hoover Gap. The rebels had been surprised by this move and could not allow the Federals to keep this position because it would make Hardee's position untenable, so they attacked Wilder's force with vigor. Although the Lightning Brigade was heavily outnumbered and nearly outflanked, they held their ground by using their Spencer repeating rifles as a force multiplier. Over to the, just to the west, at Liberty Gap, the same story was taking shape. The Union forces had surprised the Confederates and were flanking them on both sides. After several more days of aggressive maneuvering on the part of Rosecrans' army, Bragg, once again, uh, his once strong position was now untenable. He was forced to fall back towards Chattanooga and the Georgia line. Benson Bobrick writes, The whole Tullahoma campaign had been a strategic tour de force. It was the first time in the, in the war that a large army had been forced from its fortified works by flank approaches. In this case, through mountain passes, the rebels thought secure. Every one of Rosecrans' corps, corps commanders, uh, headed by Thomas, was impressed by his achievement. Washington less so, because he seemed to have taken too long to get going, despite his sl- splendid success. Meanwhile, just as the Army of the Cumberland was completing their flanking marches, a few minor battles were taking place elsewhere. Of course, I say this with tongue-in-cheek because at this time, U.S. Grant had finally taken Vicksburg with 30,000-plus prisoners, and George Meade had just beaten Robert E. Lee at Gettysburg in the largest battle of the war. Secretary of State, or Secretary of War, Stanton, wrote Rosecrans, Lee's army overthrown, Grant victorious. You and your noble army now have the chance to give the finishing blow to the rebellion. Will you neglect this chance? Well, this telegram shocked and perplexed Rosecrans and his commanders. So again, after a six-week period of relative quiet, the army took off on another flanking maneuver. And as before, Thomas's corps was in the center position. 
This time, they spread out over a 50-mile front and worked their way around Bragg's uh, army uh, on both flanks with feigning marches and countermarches again. The objective was to envelop and capture the Confederate army if possible. Thomas uh, marched his men 51 miles through deep-wooded gulches and over mountain spurs to Bragg's rear. He seized Lookout Mountain on September 8th. Bragg, realizing his position was vulnerable, evacuated Chattanooga on September the 9th and headed into Georgia. Now, this is where Rosecrans made a huge mistake. After all of the sort of pushing that had been done by Washington, he, would, he now decided to be very, very aggressive. He thought Bragg uh, was demoralized and whipped, quote-unquote, and his forces might retreat all the way to Atlanta. But this was not the case at all. In fact, Bragg's Confederate forces were being reinforced with large numbers from Georgia, from uh, all throughout the South, really, including Mississippi. And most importantly, General Longstreet's corps from Lee's army was coming as well. Bragg's army, now concentrated just south of the Chickamauga Creek, had uh, swollen in size to nearly 80,000 men. The Army of Tennessee now greatly outnumbered the Union Army of the Cumberland, which was far from its supply base in Middle Tennessee. Now this brings us to the Battle of Chickamauga. This battle is named after Chickamauga Creek, which is loosely translated the River of Death, which um, made, this is the battle that made George Thomas famous. Now, Rosecrans' Union Army was still scattered over a large area, and General Thomas found out from one of his division commanders, James Negley, that a huge Confederate force was gathering to their front. Thomas warned Rosecrans of this, but he he roundly dismissed it. Nevertheless, Thomas concentrated his own forces and ordered his divisions rapidly forward to stave off a Confederate attack. Finally, after the other corps commanders observed the same Confederate force concentration, Rosecrans saw the light, again from Bobrick. But his confident exultation at having outflanked Bragg soon turned to bitter gloom when he realized his energetic pursuit had exposed his army to demise. Rosecrans had to quickly concentrate his scattered force as a matter of life and death. At about this time, Charles Dana, the Assistant Secretary of War, arrived from Washington as an observer. Rosecrans was now frantic about the danger he faced, but Thomas was a calming influence. Dana and Rosecrans went to visit Thomas's headquarters and watched Thomas ride up at a dignified pace, quote, somewhat like Jehovah on horseback, massive, judicial, impassive, possessing an Olympian calm, unquote. Now, the Confederates under Bragg actually had an excellent initial plan, and had it worked, the battle would have been over before it started. His plan was to flank the Union Army on their left and beat them in detail as they remained scattered over a large area. However, Bragg's plans went sideways right away, in part due to the efforts of, again, Wilder's Lightning Brigade. On September 18th, Bragg sent two columns of infantry and cavalry to cross Chickamauga Creek in two separate crossings upstream and on the left flank of the Union Army. 
The two rebel flanking columns outnumbered the troops defending the crossings. However, they uh, were able to slow them enough to ruin their plans. In fact, Wilder's Lightning Brigade decimated the much more numerous rebel forces they faced, again, because of their Spencer repeating rifles. Wilder recalled, quote, It actually seemed a pity to kill so many men. They fell in heaps, and I had, I had it in my heart to order the firing to cease and to end the awful sight, unquote. The rebels they were facing were part of a force which had come with John Bell Hood from the Eastern Theater of the War. These men would play a much greater role under Longstreet's command in two days. Now, Chickamauga is what you might call a soldier's battle. This is because the generals could see could not see the battle in its entirety. There was no visibility due to the tree cover and the undulations of the ground north of Chickamauga Creek. So much of the fighting was done at close quarters with generals guessing and not knowing whom their troops were up against. This type of battle definitely benefits the aggressor, and that was the role that Bragg's rebels were playing that day. On September 19, 1863, the battle began in earnest. Thomas's corps had pushed farther to the north, and they became the left flank of the Union Army. This uh, fact is crucial to understanding the rest of the battle. Now, Thomas was rightly convinced it was Bragg's plan to flank the Union Army from the north uh, and on that side, uh, and now the two armies faced each other in what could be roughly called a straight line from north to south, with the Federals on the west and the Rebels on the east. The Federals still had forces scattered around, but were forming up with Thomas's corps on the far left and McCook and Crittenden's respective corps making up the right. The rebels were uh, much more concentrated and ready for action. Also, Longstreet's force was streaming in by train, and Longstreet himself would be arriving that night. So rebel reinforcements were still coming in. Now, due to Thomas's quick thinking and preparations, his 14th Corps was prepared and in position to face the enemy on the left. Then, on the morning of the 19th, Thomas's forces indeed began to receive an onslaught from Bragg's rebels. The attacks began on the left, on the far left of Thomas's corps, and then surged from left to right. Now, this is where General Rosecrans' leadership style got him into trouble. Rosecrans was, was great at strategic planning and pulling off grand flanking movements. However, in the heat of battle, his habit of bypassing the chain of command was his downfall. Rosecrans, in answering Thomas's call for reinforcements on the left, bypassed the chain of command and himself ordered brigades and divisions from the other corps over to the left to help Thomas without informing the corps commanders of those units. Now, on the 19th, this approach seemed to work. However, again, the fighting was close quarters and confused due to the terrain and trees. Thomas's corps held off constant attacks from Confederates led by the divisions of Cheatham, Walker, Liddell, and by Forrest Cavalry. Things were beginning to quiet down in the afternoon uh, when just as Thomas's, on Thomas's right, the rebels of A.P. Stewart's division slammed into a crease that was between Thomas's unit and Union forces just to the right, led by Jefferson C. Davis. Yes, this is Union General Davis. The rebels nearly broke through and were about to cut the Union Army in half. 
However, Thomas moved troops over to his left quickly to fill the gaps and head off the attack. Uh, Rosecrans did the same. He moved Negley's division over from the right, and the rebel uh, attack lost steam after nearly breaking through. But Bragg was not done for that day yet. As night was falling, Bragg sent in one more desperate attack, led by Breckinridge and Patrick Cleburne's division on Thomas's left. His men held against some of the best troops in the entire uh, rebel army. Patrick Claiborne's division was the most aggressive and hardest-hitting units in the Confederacy, but he was unable to gain traction against Thomas's exhausted but well-prepared and well-entrenched troops. The day's fighting was finally over. The soldiers slept on their arms, without blankets, within earshot of the enemy across the way. The two army generals would spend the night shifting and reshifting units to get ready for the next day's fighting. That day would be September the 20th, and it would be a catastrophe for William S. Rosecrans and the Army of the Cumberland. Things began on the 20th, however, just the way they had began on the 19th, with the Confederate attacks mainly focused on Thomas's sector on the left. From Bobrick. In successive and repeated charges, the whole Confederate right, brigade after brigade, assailed the Union breastworks, but was repulsed. There was a moment of alarm when two brigades flanked Thomas on the left and briefly got behind the Union lines. They were repulsed by reinforcements, and Bragg uh, was unable to capitalize on this breakthrough. Besides this, things were going quite well for the Union forces, who were formed up and taking on all comers from the Confederates. Now, the Union Army, especially Rosecrans and Thomas, at this point had excellent intelligence assets in the area, and they knew that Confederate reinforcements were coming in from the east. What they could not have known was that James Longstreet had arrived overnight, and most of his corps from the Army of Northern Virginia had arrived also. They couldn't have also known uh, that Bragg had given Longstreet control of the entire left of his army, and Longstreet had a bold plan. As we discussed in in the previous series, Longstreet formed up his units in deep columns. His plan, untried yet in the Civil War, was to ram his concentrated forces directly at the Union center and right in a column of brigades five to six deep. Now, this is where Rosecrans' habit of bypassing the chain of command ended in disaster. Union General Thomas Wood's division was in position, positioned directly in front of Longstreet's forming columns, and little did they know that his sector was about to get hammered. It was impossible for anyone to see this due to the trees and terrain. Now, Rosecrans was getting increasingly worried about his left, So Rosecrans, again bypassing the chain of command, ordered General Wood right in front of Longstreet to move his division to the left and close a gap that did not exist. In fact, Wood was moving out of line and opening up a gap that Longstreet was about to pour through, and pour through he did, again from Bobrick. The charge was tremendous, crushing Crittenden and taking both McCook and Thomas in the flank, That completely changed the nature of the fight. One division was rushed forward to stay the tide, but in vain. 
Sheridan was ordered to stand with his two light brigades, but he too was overrun. The whole Union right seemed about to be driven from the field. From James McPherson is the following. More gray soldiers poured into the break, rolling up Rosecrans right and sending one-third of the Blue Army along with four division commanders, two corps commanders, and a traumatized Rosecrans whose headquarters had been overrun, streaming northward towards Chattanooga, eight miles away. Here were the makings of a decisive victory that had eluded the Western Confederate armies for more than two years. Now, the Cumberland uh, Army of the Cumberland was being routed from the field except for Thomas's corps on the left. Longstreet's attack had devastated the Union Army, and Rosecrans made his escape to Chattanooga, leaving Thomas to fend for himself. When Rosecrans arrived safely in Chattanooga, he wired uh, Washington the following news, quote, My army is whipped and dispersed, unquote. Charles Dana also wrote, quote, my report today is of, of, the, of deplorable importance. Chickamauga is as fatal a name in our history as Bull Run, unquote. With his 14th Corps, uh, the lone remaining Union force on the field, Thomas was gathering remnants of other units to make a last stand. Again, from Bubrick. Under Thomas, a force of about 25,000 men had drawn itself into a horseshoe, the crest of Snodgrass Hill, and with his artillery advantageously posed, repulsed a dozen fierce attacks on the left and center, right and rear. The stand was made was almost a reprise of that made at Stones River the year before. With bayonet, bayonets and clubbed muskets, the resolute Federals pierced and beat back the charging Confederates, covering the slopes of the ridge with Confederate dead. Ammunition ran low, still Thomas held. Meanwhile, Union Commander Rosecrans was safely in Chattanooga and had no idea Thomas was having his last stand at Snodgrass Hill, soon to be known as Horseshoe Ridge. He sent orders for Thomas to retreat, to which Thomas replied, quote, it will ruin this army to withdraw it now. This position must be held until night, unquote. Then, from two o'clock until sunset, the rebels, in despair, hurled their entire army upon Thomas, whose forces were outnumbered by more than two to, or three to one. Ammunition was running out, and it seemed the Federals could not hold out any longer. Then, around 4 p.m., Gordon Granger and James Steedman showed up from Rossville with three fresh Union brigades. Thomas sent them straight in on the right as Longstreet's Confederates were about to turn his flank. With a suicidal bayonet charge, they shocked the Confederates who thought they were about to capture Thomas's army. The ridge was secured and Snodgrass Hill held. Now on a personal note, my ancestor Elijah Jones was serving in the artillery in Hindman's division of Polk's Corps at this time. Now, Hyman's division was heavily engaged against Thomas's right flank, right along with Longstreet's men, in this desperate fighting. And in the fighting, Hyman was wounded. Now, that night, about 8.40 p.m., James Garfield, future president and, at, the, at this point, chief of staff for Rosecrans, 
wired the War Department, quote, General Thomas has fought the most terrific battle and had damaged the enemy badly, unquote. Charles Dana reported, quote, Our troops were as unmovable as the rocks they stood on. Thomas seems to have filled every soldier with his own uncom- unconquerable firmness, unquote. Thomas was thereafter known as the Rock of Chickamauga. Now, later that night, Thomas formed a new temporary line at Rossville to cover his retreat. Then he withdrew his forces by the dim light of the clouded moon in perfect order with a strong rear guard. Three unfortunate Union regiments were caught in the last, a last-minute rebel push as Thomas's corps made their retreat. Chickamauga was the second deadliest battle in the Civil War, with both sides having lost about 17,000 men each. And it was by far the most chaotic and confusing. At this point, Abraham Lincoln's estimate of Thomas of George Thomas soared after Chickamauga. Quote, it is doubtful whether his heroism and skill exhibited last Sunday afternoon has ever been surpassed in the world. Unquote. Lincoln's telegraph officer saved this note and presented it in person to Thomas two years after the war. Now join me next time when we continue our discussion of General George H. Thomas. <laughs>